Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, Kansas City feeling the chop, baby. I don't know why. It's June. It's after June 1st. Next month, training camp starts. That's right. Think about it. Next month, July, training camp starts. I've been all about baseball, but I'm feeling a little Chiefs today, so I got to wear my red. Got the red Chiefs cap. Oh, I got the red vest on, the coach's vest. Rocking that Arrowhead pride right here. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me on this new edition Friday, June 4th edition, live of Tapped In, brought to you by the Kansas City Public Network from Taps on Main in downtown Kansas City in the crossroads, 17th and Main. We are live, and I am so excited. So, yeah, I'm just, it's, I've just felt like this was a necessary Red Friday. We're getting close. I'm excited. We're past the draft. We're past a lot of the free agent signings. And I wasn't going to kick off the show with the Chiefs, but man, sometimes that Chief pride just swells through and it just, there's nothing you can do about it. And so obviously there's really no news about the Chiefs right now. There's the Teron Matthews stuff. There's obviously Orlando Brown Jr. talking about how he's going to keep Patrick Mahomes' jersey clean. Gotta love all that. I'm looking at the messes that are some of the other teams in the NFL. There was a list on ESPN by Bill Barnwell of the 16 worst, worst off season so far. And I saw some, not the chiefs. Our boys aren't on there. Absolutely not because the chiefs have had themselves a hell of an off season, but saw a few other teams on there that have not had as great of off seasons. And I look at what the Rams are doing, for example, and when I see that, yeah, they made this huge trade to go and bring in their quarterback, Matthew Stafford about to be 33 years old. How much does Stafford have left in the tank? I do think it was a good trade. Also think it was a good trade for Detroit though, because they did get two first rounders in addition to Jared Goff. But anyway, their best offensive lineman in Los Angeles is a 39 year old left tackle. We just saw what happens when you rely on just maybe one or two players to basically carry your offensive line. And the chiefs did it with a 29 year old and a 31 year old uh, uh, at tackle and got bit in the ass. How are the Rams really going to think that they're going to protect an injury-prone 33-year-old? So anyway, that notwithstanding, what the Chiefs have done this offseason, I know I've talked about it, I've banged this drum just like that drum gets banged up at Arrowhead Stadium. The Chiefs' offensive line this year, man, Patrick Mahomes is going to have himself a day. So, but that's just, I had to just touch off on a little Chiefs to start off because, again, I'm feeling so fresh. It's looking good in this Chiefs' red. So, but you know who else has been looking pretty good here in Kansas City? Who is playing in season, who it is their time of year, and I should be dedicating my time talking about them, and that is our Kansas City Royals. I talked a little bit about them last Friday. I said, you know, they were kind of a little, things were a little rough. We just had the series with Tampa Bay. And now here we are, Monday night. I was out there at the K. I, gave, I did the little video to show you all that Ponch and I were out there representing the Kansas City faithful, representing the loyal fa fan base that is the Kansas City Royals fan base in addition to Chiefs Kingdom because uh, I had that nice Chiefs uh, Memorial Day draft cap thing, uh, the rock and the red, white, and blue. But uh, and once again, thank you to the sacrifice. Appreciate, thank you, the sacrifices made by all those who could make a day like Memorial Day possible and make the fact that I get to do a show like this in a country like this possible. But that was Monday. Great win by the Royals. Uh, huge, exciting 7-3. to three. It was a football score. Get used to that, Pittsburgh, with us putting up sevens and you only getting threes against us when you come back to Arrowhead later this season. 
Uh, that's right. The shit talking is already beginning, and it's not going to stop. We're not going to stop. Uh, but anyway, now the Royals were able to take two, uh, both, both games away from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is one of the worst teams in the league, and I recognize maybe two or three guys on the roster. That is something that even for me to say is pretty surprising. Uh, but it was a, a nice 7-3 seven to, seven to three victory on Monday night. Mike Miner looked really sharp. Six innings pitched, five hits, one walk, seven strikeouts, and just the two earned runs. Got that victory to get us back to 500. Alberto Mondesi was the man of the game, though. Man, he had two excellent, superb plays in the field. We're just hard charging from shortstop at a ground ball and then makes a wicked throw to first base just on a dime that probably would be damn near 100-mile-per-hour heat if he were on the pitcher's mound. And then he also hit a monster 417-foot home run. Just a no-doubter as soon as it came off the bat. And all contributing, helping out in this Royal 7-3 victory. And the two plays that he made in the field, I looked over at Ponch. I'm like, man, there's a handful of guys, maybe one hand of uh, – you can count on one hand how many guys in baseball can make a play like that. Just He's so fast. He just moves so quickly or covers so much ground so quickly. It's ridiculous to watch. He is like the Flash. And so, but again, the shortcoming that we always come back to with Adalberto Mondesi, he came out of the game with a tight hamstring. Then he didn't play again on uh, Tuesday night and they rested him. They had the day off on Wednesday and he didn't play again last night. And so it's, and I don't, I haven't seen the lineup for today's game, for tonight's game against Minnesota, but I, damn it. Like, it's it's just so frustrating. It's so frustrating because you get, these tantalizing snippets of how damn good the guy can be. And then he's not playing. So at some point, at some point the Royals have a decision to make, but hopefully it's, it is not anything serious and hopefully he can come back and cause he's been, he's been lights out. He's been playing excellent baseball, batting over 300. That was the second home run that he hit on Monday night. And he's just looked every bit the part in his short time that he has the limited amount of time he has played this year. He's looked every bit the part of what the Royals need, the spark in the lineup. And that you can see that's one of the reasons the Royals were able to claw back up to 500. And now here we are. Uh, they were able to get, uh, they got back to 500 Monday night. And then Tuesday they play against the Pirates game two, 10 to five. Then the story of that game, the man of that game, the man of the hour, holy crap, bringing the power that sends it up to the light towers. Andrew Bennett, Hendy, holy crap, did he have himself a day. Five RBIs, all mostly due to a monster grand slam that he hit in the fifth inning. Oh, my God, it was so good. The Royals had a five-run fifth inning after they were kind of scuttling along and they were down 4-1 to one going into the top of the fourth. Salvi hit a two-run home run in the bottom of the fourth because there's a little story to tell with Salvi here in a moment as well. Salvi hit uh, the two-run home run to make it four to three in the bottom of the fourth. And then, yeah, the five-run fifth, just Ben Benintendi, just that grand slam. Man, it was insane. And it really saved the day after what was a shaky start by Brady Singer, who continues the trend of it being just very inconsistent. But that's kind of be expected in such a young starting pitcher. And the Royals tacked on one more with a second home run. Keep that in mind, a second home run by Salvador Perez of the game in the seventh to put him up to a dozen and give the Royals the 10 to five victory. So like I mentioned, they had the day off on Wednesday. Then we come back down to Thursday and the Royals start a three game series in uh, at home against the Minnesota twins. And they are able to get the six to five win 
off of some crazy shenanigans that we have seen befallen the likes of our own Royals on several occasions. But this time, man, it's nice to be on the other end of it when a team just absolutely shits the bed. And that is what the Twins, without a doubt, did at one point. But I'll get to that. Uh, it was a decent start by Chris Bubich. And so we go into the seventh inning. It's tied tied uh, five to five. We also had two home runs by Salvador Perez again in this game. And so, but I will get to that in just a quick moment. Uh, so five to five in the seventh inning, Carlos Santana leads off the inning with a single. I'm sorry, he gets walked to lead off the, uh, goes, goes for space, gets walked to lead off the seventh inning, the bottom of the seventh. And then you have Gerard Dyson comes in, pinch runs for him, as Dyson has done who knows how many times in the, on his pinch run, immediately steals second. So then you get a Salvi pop-up. And then Andrew Benintendi with that Benintendi with that one out lines the ball out into left center field. Routine second out. Or so it should have been, except it's the twins, so it wasn't. And here's that shitting of the bed I was referring to. Is they drop the set the center fielder Gilberto Celestino. The twins are another team with a few dudes that I have not heard of. Uh, but Celestino runs in front of left fielder Trevor Larnack, another guy I kind of clueless with. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but Celestino runs in front of him. Got uh, uh, Larnack is sitting there ready to catch the ball. Celestino runs right in front of him and then just straight drops the ball. Like he kind of bumps him a little bit, and so, well, Larnack just looks on incredulously and he drops the ball. And so that gets Dyson running from second to third and being the speedster that he is. Celestino then makes a second error on the play. The rarely seen two errors by one guy on one play. And Celestino then just lobs it to second base, way overthrows anybody, the second baseman or shortstop, whoever was there. And the ball lands and rolls to first base, creating the opening for Gerard Dyson then to run from third to home. And so by what should have been an out, leaving a, a second out of the inning, leaving a man stranded on second, all of a sudden you have two errors, still just the one out, and draw Dyson scores from second base to make it a six to five ball game. Uh, that was Jacob Junior. I'm sorry, it was uh, Jacob Junis who got the win. But it was Scott Barlow who closed out those last two innings, six to five. Royals are 28 and 26, back above 500 by a couple of games. They're looking good. If you take away that flipping 11 game losing streak, the Royals would be 28 and 15. And man, that'd be a that's that's a team to be right up there contending for uh, for the American League. And so, but even as it is, Royals aren't that far out from the likes of the Chicago White Sox. It is very possible that this is a, that that eleven game uh, eleven game slide was an aberration. I've talked about it at length before, so I'm not going to get any further into it. But it was encouraging to see the Royals not be the ones that let a terrible mistake be be what cost them a game that was the Royals who actually benefited from the other team making a terrible mistake and then were able to hold on to that 6-5 to five victory. Not, or due very much so in large part to Salvador Perez's second two-home run game of the week, Salvi became the fourth Royal in, in uh, team history to have uh, multi, a multi-home run game in consecutive games joining uh, Daryl Porter, Ed Kirkpatrick, and the swing dog, Mike Sweeney. So Salvi is up to 14 home runs on the season. That is only three back of the major league lead, which is a three-way tie. Salvi is in uh, also, he's tied for six with like four or five other other players for, uh, third, or for uh, fourth in 
uh, I'm sorry, tied for sixth with like four other players. It's just a mishmash of dudes with 17, 16, 15, 14 home runs. But Salvi's among them. So that's pretty cool to see, something we don't see a whole lot. And you would not have expected it to be Salvador Perez. You would have thought it to be Jorge Soler, who that is something to talk about for another day because I love the kids' show. And Gracie and Kingston can tell you, Gat and Kingston can tell you this, and Ponch. And I and we all the Ponch Gat and I a few weeks ago all saying where in the world is Carmen San Diego when we drove back from the Royals game last month and the classic where in the world is Carmen San Diego and Ponch brought it up I was driving the Jeep and so he brought it up he played it Kingston sitting there looking at us like what in the hell is going on bless his heart and but I bring all that up because where in the world is Jorge Soler. And so, again, that's a talk for another day. But, man, that's at least somebody in the Royals lineup is bringing the power. And it's – I mean, who, who else to come up in the pin, in a pinch or come up in the clutch than Salvador Perez? And that's definitely what he's been doing. So, tonight we have the second game against the Twins. Uh, it, it is a four-game set. I'm sorry, not a three-game set. Uh, the second of four against the Twins. Brad Keller out on the mound tonight. Slowly – I've talked about it. He's slowly been, been – uh, Tinking that, uh, that that ERA down, just tinkering down just a little bit, and he's down a five six eight ERA. Hopefully, he can do some more work on that. Get it maybe close, maybe even sub five if he has a great start. I don't know. We'll see. But he's going against Matt Shoemaker for the Twins tonight. Seven ten start. Again, not sure about Mondesi. Stay tuned to find out about that. So some exciting Kansas City news, obviously, to kick off this Friday, this uh, June fourth edition of Tapped In. Um, but we're going to flip gears to a few more, something a little bit more nationally, something big that happened last night. And that was the Lakers, the Los Angeles Lakers. And then the NBA lost game six to the Phoenix Suns and the defending NBA champions, they defend from the bubble. They are the bubble champions. So if you want to put that asterisk, I'll leave that up to you, Aaron. Um, but they, the defending champs have been eliminated in the first round. You are now looking at three of the four conference finalists from last year have all been knocked out in the first round. Obviously, the Lakers, and then you also had the Boston Celtics, but they had the major injury with Jalen Brown. You had other uh, NBA finalists. Uh, the Miami Heat got eliminated, have had their own injury issues, and the only one to advance was the Denver Nuggets after last night they defeated the Portland Trailblazers to also win a game six and advance on to the second round of the Western Conference Finals. Uh, but Denver being the only one that was a conference finalist last year that advanced. And they've, of course, also had the injury issues, losing Jamal Murray to a torn ACL and uh, losing him for the, the rest of the season, leaving them without a true number two uh, beside uh, Nikola Jokic. But you've seen... That was Aaron Ty and I were texting a little bit last night. Is you might have been you might have seen a little bit of the ascendance of former Missouri player uh, Michael Porter Jr. I hesitate to call him a former Missouri player because he played all of what three games with Mizzou due to injury and everything. That a top notch prospect, you know, number one, number two, number three recruit in the country, and comes in and just absolutely just he's he's boondoggled by injuries. I mean, there was nothing he could do about it. And so, but anyway, he is looks like he could be emerging as a legitimate threat and just another thing where when Jamal Murray comes back, man, the Denver Nuggets could be a scary, scary team. If you watch the tailgate podcast, obviously we talk at length about, uh, about the NBA, but I need to bring it a little bit up here tonight because again, it is a very pertinent issue. Pertinent story is because this is the first time in LeBron's entire career. First time in his entire career 
that his team has lost in the first round of the playoffs. Think about that. He was 14-0 and coming into this in the playoffs in his entire career. Yes, he's missed the playoffs a couple seasons, but the first time in his entire career. And, man, folks, I got to say, his body language was showing it. And Kingston and I were talking a little off-air before the show started. It was it was showing pretty early, uh, but it, it was pretty much from right from the get-go. LeBron's body language was not feeling it. And it was very much so... Uh, another team, just all these teams that were conference finalists last year dealing with major injuries. The big one for the Lakers has been Anthony Davis and his groin injury. And he finally he gave it a go. And the, the doctor said, okay, let's let's go out there and do this. And so he went out there, started game six. He didn't even make it six minutes into the game. He was out with like five and a half to go. The groin was re-aggravated. Maybe it just it wasn't ready to go in the first place, but he barely played at all. He'd been in the games he had been playing. He'd been getting dogged by Anthony Day or by uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, DeAndre Ayton, the former first overall pick center for the Suns. Uh, but it's yeah, he just he wasn't good to go, and it cost the Lakers. But what I would be remiss if I didn't say, and maybe this is just a biased, very biased take, but LeBron when when he came out of that when Davis came out of the game, LeBron didn't really help matters. You could see he had a very defeated. Uh, his, his body language was of that of a very defeated player who knew that he probably didn't have a chance. And that really shocks me because, yes, the Suns were the two seed, but that's just very unbecoming and very unlike LeBron James, the champ, you know, who's a champion, who's King James. And man, he was just not feeling it. And I especially noticed down the stretch when it was at one point a 29 point lead for the, uh, the Suns. And halfway through the fourth quarter, the Lakers had clipped that down to 10. And you're wondering, okay, maybe is this where the Lakers get back into the game? And just one moment that really stood out to me was when LeBron went up for a layup. He was down in the paint. He he, he missed the bucket. There was a little bit of physicality, without a doubt. And there was no whistle blown. And instead of running down the court as the Suns went down, LeBron turned around and was barking at the officials. And so it was probably about five, six seconds, maybe even longer, of the Lakers playing four on five. And Jay Crowder hit an open three to all of a sudden make it a 13-point game again. And that was what are you what are you doing? Like you had a chance to get it down to single digits. Yes, you probably it should have been a foul. But it wasn't just in that interaction. He proceeded pretty much every time down on the court, the next few, he had the next possession. He hit a layup down there. And he sat there and again was late getting back on defense because he's barking at the official of the previous possession. That's doing your team no good. And just, again, the body language showed very much that he didn't have the confidence in the rest of the teammates outside of Anthony Davis and himself uh, to to be able to actually pull out this win. And if you would have told him midway through the, se- or, yeah, midway through the season when the Lakers were up near the top of the league that it was the Suns that they'd be playing, like, yeah, he would have come up with some narrative about, oh, well, we're the underdogs and blah, blah, blah. But in his mind, LeBron would have been like, oh, oh man, AD or not, we are going to smoke the Suns. So I don't know. This just might be me just rapping a little bit about this. And and maybe, again, it's just I, I want so bad to see LeBron be that, be that guiding light. And in so many ways he is. But then when you see some of the on-court antics, it's like, come on, man. Just I mean, We've talked about on the tailgate the narratives he spins. And it's like, you're the best player in the world, dude. Like, you're not the underdog in most of these cases. And just to really go out there and have that kind of attitude on the court, it just, it was, again, it was just very off-putting. And it was disappointing to see uh, he, with a little more effort, maybe they could have gotten it to a game seven. I mean, who 
who knows? But that, on the other, on the flip side of that, you got to give a lot of credit to the Suns. I mean, Devin Booker came out and had a forty-seven point night. I mentioned the Jay Crowder clutch three. He had a couple clutch buckets down the down the stretch. As did Chris Paul. Uh, Crowder finished with eighteen points. Chris Paul had eight points, twelve assists. I mean, LeBron still had a good stat line. He had twenty-nine points, nine rebounds, and seven assists. But again, it just it it wasn't enough. And when you see that they were only down by 10 midway through the fourth, you know, six minutes left in the game, hey, let's get something going. And, yes, you have to exert so much energy to come back from the likes of a 29-point deficit. But just it's just not – for so many who want to crown him, it was just not – it wasn't a shining moment for LeBron James. And so, once again, the first first round – for the first time ever, a first-round playoff exit for King James. A lot of question marks for the Lakers going into the offseason – they still have LeBron James. They still have Anthony Davis signed for at least the the immediate future for the next few seasons. Uh, but a lot of other question marks of what they're going to do on the remainder of that roster. So I shall, I suppose we shall see. But the, for now, the Lakers are out. The Heat are out. The Clippers are on the verge. The Clippers are struggling very much so with, um, with Luka Doncic just doing insane things. Four 40-point games and 11 career playoff games so far. Just absurd numbers from the third-year player. I mean, he's is he is something very, very special. Luka Doncic is clearly something that wow, that kid is. He might be next on the next trajectory, being the best player in the game. I mean, it's insane what he can do. But you've got a very it's it's a lot of the new blood going forward in the Western Conference. If the uh, if they do finish off, if Dallas does finish off the Clippers, you're going to be looking at the Utah Jazz, the Phoenix Suns, the Denver Nuggets. Those are your one, two, three, and they all advanced. And that's, man, that's, that's, uh, it's a different time. It's a different era in basketball. And this is not the bubble basketball. Yes, it's still affected by the pandemic, but man, it is definitely some interesting times seeing what these teams have gone through. And maybe the Lakers were also tired. They did go through the NBA playoffs and they barely had a, barely had a month off before the season got started. I mean, so it was definitely a very shortened off season. A lot of basketball played in a very small amount of time. And so that definitely should be mentioned. So I shouldn't rain too hard on the Lakers, but still we're, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see who comes out of the Western conference into the NBA finals. Cause again, you can't, can't knock on the Utah jazz either. They looked very good with what seemed to be a pretty game Memphis Grizzlies team after they had jumped up into uh, the play in through one, the play on tournament to get that eight seed. So we shall see what happens there. Uh, but I'm going to tw- uh, uh, flip gears one last time and finish off with some other very interesting news, some very pertinent news, and really some news that it's, it's a, it's kind of a, there's no, no kind of about it, it is really a bummer. And that is the Naomi Osaka situation. I'm talking about the 23 year old women's tennis player, number two ranked women's tennis player in the world, four time major champion. And she withdrew. She won her first round game of this, uh, this most recent French open of the French open that's still going on. However, she did not wish to attend the press conference afterwards. And so she didn't, and she was fined $15,000 and was even threatened to be taken out to default out of the tournament period uh, to they, they majorly threatened to just take her out altogether due to this. They do have to, they do have these duties. That is part of the duties. If they are requested by the media, they are supposed to, but Naomi Osaka, then after she was threatened with being taken out defaulting out of the tournament, the next day she just withdrew altogether. 
and she said things that like she she didn't want to be a distraction uh, and she feels it's the best thing for the tournament the other players and it's the tournament's well-being and her own well-being i'm sorry and she got blitzed by a lot of people especially some of the kind of the traditionalists of tennis i mean there's i talk, i know i talked about it last week a lot of the baseball traditionalists in my bone to pick segment with major league baseball uh but this is something else that is very much so the kind of the wimbledon crowd uh when it comes to that they, they adhere so much to doing things the old way in tennis that are a little bit archaic and anybody who doesn't go according to the book gets kind of gets really put a bad light put upon them a lot of bad things have been said and so like there was a british newspaper that was talking about her and said that she had diva behavior and of all people Piers morgan comes out and calls her petulant and narcissistic and said that she is taking a page from the megan and harry playbook of wanting their press cake and eating it too which for the record, Piers Morgan then was let go shortly after that Meghan and Harry comments when he didn't agree with the criticism that he was getting from some of his colleagues and he walked off the set and subsequently parted ways with the show that he was a part of. Well, he still is out there talking stuff and he's out there talking stuff about Naomi Osaka and again, petulant narcissistic. And it's, it's, it's really ridiculous sometimes how the media... I realize I am, this is media, what I'm doing here, but how the media can just be so offended and can be so egotistical and sit there up on their high horse and look at somebody who does something for reasons that they don't understand, who makes a decision, withdraws or refuses to talk to them. And all of a sudden they feel like that, Hey, they say the pin is mightier than the sword. Well, here I'm bringing my pin. I'm bringing my microphone and they are going to, I'm going to make sure that they know that they were they are in the wrong and i'm going to make sure that everybody else knows that they're in the wrong as well and so many in the media feel the need again especially some of these traditionalists overseas in britain feel the need to like a Piers morgan to really just bring the hammer down on these athletes when the reality is is that naomi osaka was dealing with a great deal of anxiety and she has she came out and talked about it and she she sent this long message on social media apologizing to to um to the reporters to media members who were impacted by this who maybe were supposed to do an interview or supposed to catch some words from her and she apologized because she did feel bad but she acknowledged that she's not a very good public speaker and she always gets extremely nervous and she's been dealing with anxiety and depression long time since 2018 she says that since her first major win in 2018 when she won the 2018 us open over serena williams in what was something that i i remember watching that ha watching all of the the events transpire there and thinking god this poor girl because let's see she's 23 now so she was 20 years old then and she won the us open she beat serena but it was serena's first uh us open back after having her child after her pregnancy and she made it all the way to the finals and so it's the us open it's up there in new york city and the crowd is fully behind her and serena gets into some disagreements and some altercations with the uh excuse me with the chair umpire carlos ramos 
And she was very outspoken about it during the tournament, during that final round. And so ultimately Osaka got the win. And Serena went up and she hugged Osaka, but she refused to shake hands with Carlos Ramos and told him that you owe me an apology. And as Ramos walked off, the fans booed. And this was a moment as as Osaka is being presented as the winner and the booze carry on into the trophy presentation. And Osaka literally hides her face in her towel. Like again, she is 20 years old. She's a kid. Essentially. She's such a young woman at that point. And to be in that spotlight and where clearly the fa- the crowd wanted Serena to win. And then they didn't. And it was due to, you know, maybe some controversial uh, umpiring due to, and how many times have I talked about the umpiring? Yep. It's in tennis too. There's issues there. But anyway, Osaka did earn the victory, and Serena acknowledged that. And so as the trophy presentation was going on, the boos were continuing. Whether or not it was because Serena didn't win, whether or not it was for Carlos Ramos, it's, it's hard to say that the fans would really be booing Naomi Osaka, but that's at least how it seemed. It was during her trophy presentation. And what she said afterwards, the quote she said is, I know everyone was cheering for her, and I'm sorry that it had to end like this. She didn't have she didn't get to say this celebratory remarks of how this is the greatest moment of her life up to this point. And this is such a the a first huge milestone in her career. No, it was shrouded by booze and completely overshadowed by something that had nothing to do with her. And that's how she started her career. So when she comes out and says that she's been battling depression and anxiety since that incredibly traumatic first experience, first major win. Nobody should question her. First off, nobody, if somebody claims that they make a decision and is due to their mental health, first off, don't even question it. You're not walking in that person's shoes. And I know I talked, I talked a few weeks ago with the Drew Robinson situation and May was, was mental health awareness month. June is men's mental health month. And so mental health is obviously very much on the forefront right now. And I know I talked at length about it with Drew Robinson, but if Naomi Osaka or anybody else comes in and has, and it doesn't matter what she did, the fact that she didn't want to talk to the press and she claims it's due to anxiety. If people want to come out and and say that she has no right to come to you, just that she's just using mental health as an excuse, who the hell do you think you are to say something like that? Again, you're not in her shoes. You're not in her mind. You have, you have no idea what she is dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And that goes for anybody. If somebody calls into work, if somebody, if somebody is not feeling well, if somebody just, it, there's a number of things that can be canceled or that don't go somebody's way and they just don't feel up to it because there's just mental health stuff. There's bigger things in the world going on out there than a damn tennis tournament and a press conference afterwards. And so the fact that so many came after Naomi Osaka after that is appalling. And unfortunately, it is a reality, especially with the press and especially with some of the traditionalist press who, oh, my gosh, we got to wield that pin. We got to wield that microphone because, man, we have been offended here. And it just it's infuriating that this is still happening, that all these stories come out about people come, stepping forward. The Kevin loves out there, Deron DeRozan stepping forward about their mental health. And yet there are still people out there that feel the need to attack and tear down those who are you, who, who say who it's their mental health that is causing them to have these moments and have these breakdowns. And fortunately, many in the, many in the sports world have jumped to her, have jumped to her support. And she's even had some of her colleagues come out and say that, yeah, take all the time. She needs to take all the time she can away 
from tennis because tennis needs her and we need her at 100%. So whenever, whatever she has to do to get back to that point, you know, absolutely go do it. You've got Steph Curry, uh, Olympic gold medalist gymnast uh, Lori Hernandez has come out in, in support of her. Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett of the Seattle Seahawks. Lockett, who is a very, very soft-spoken guy, does not really come out and say things. He's he he retweeted it and then mentioned his own battles with men, with mental health, which I'm sure was something a lot of people didn't see. Kyrie Irving, say what you want about him, but the guy knows what knows about the battle with mental health. He came to her defense. And then ultimately Nike, Nike did. Nike put out a statement saying that they have Naomi Osaka's back. And so it's, while there is a whole lot of the bad that we see out there with it, and it just pisses, clearly pisses me off to no end, it's fortunate to see that so many athletes who understand the battle are out there making sure to support one of their own because that is the thing is it is a giant fraternity. It is a giant sorority. It's all this big family when it comes to these athletes and we're not in their shoes. We're not out there swinging tennis rackets, swinging baseball bats, running around with football helmets or, or running up and down a court or a soccer field. We're not the ones doing that stuff. So we don't understand what they deal with on a day-to-day basis. And as I've said before, understanding compassion and again, just talking to someone, how you doing stuff like that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into it in depth like I did a, a month ago, but compassion and understanding that is the way forward in this world and that is something that just it cannot be said enough and this Naomi Osaka situation screams that is that it's clear that there's many in the media and the sports world that need to have um, just a much greater understanding and be willing to listen and not just immediately jump to conclusions and jump down someone's throat because they feel wronged ultimately it does nobody any good and it's something that needs to end. And as I've said so many times on Tapped In and on the tailgate with Aaron and Ty, just be better. That's what we want. We want people to be better. And Naomi Osaka is doing something for herself to be better and hopefully her sport to be better and just more athletes. It's an example now that more that hopefully the press and others can see that these athletes are people too. I don't know how many times, how many years, how many decades we're going to have to continue to say things like that. Athletes are people too. They need to be treated as such. And they need to be given the love and compassion that any that you would anybody else who is suffering from some mental health issues. So I'm going to finish out this edition of Tapped In with that. Thank you very much for joining me on this uh, sunny June 4th out here in lovely Kansas City. Once again, this has been Tapped In, brought to you from the Kansas City Public Network. Thank you for joining me on this live edition. I am Duncan Kaminsky, and I will see you all next week.